as we move along through the book of Genesis, uh, we're pausing for three weeks now. This is the third week that we're on pause on Genesis chapter 2. Next week we'll move on to Genesis chapter 3. The reason we're pausing, again, the reason that we're pausing on Genesis chapter 2 is because we find in Genesis 2 these massive foundational truths from God regarding the identity and roles of men and women, a subject which we, generally speaking, as a culture, are very confused about and consequently very frustrated within. And so we're pausing to look and see what does Genesis 2 have to say to us about the identity of men and women and what does it have to say in regards to the roles of men and women according to their identity. Men and women, we've said this so far, men and women have been created equal, but very different and different for a reason, different to reflect individually God's beauty in profound ways and different to reflect when together God's beauty in profound ways. So men and women have been created equal by God. There is no question of equality. And we say that, remind one another of that, because when you begin to talk about distinction in our culture, it equals for many inequality. So Scripture does not teach that. Men and women are equal, but created different, and created different on purpose, because God means to display His beauty and His glory differently and in unique and profound ways through men and through women. And in an additionally unique and profound way when one man and one woman come together and complement one another in a marriage relationship. So today, starting with Genesis 1, 27 and 2, 18, that will be our springboard. We're looking at biblical femininity or biblical womanhood. And I'll use those two phrases interchangeably. Biblical femininity and biblical womanhood. The plan is after Genesis 2, we will move forward to what I think is the most practical passage in the entire Bible regarding femininity. And that will be 1 Peter 3, which Pastor Curtis read, verses 1 through 6. And so Genesis 2, 1 Peter 3, and then all along the way, we need to remember what God says in Ephesians chapter 5. And what Ephesians chapter 5 tells us about masculinity and femininity, specifically in how they relate to one another. A man and a woman a husband and a wife, and Ephesians 5 tells us that that relationship is like the relationship between Jesus and the church. So you want to understand this mystery of a man and a woman, and it's a mystery? If you want to understand that, we look and learn from the relationship between Jesus and the church. And, and men who want to be good husbands, they look at how Jesus relates to the church. And wives who want to be good wives, they they look at how the church 
relates to Jesus. And we learn much according to Ephesians 5 about this. So, ladies, today, okay, we want to say, I want to say, that you have been designed by God in a very special way. And I do not say that patronizingly. Say that with as much seriousness and, and, and sincerity as I can. In Genesis 1.27, we have the primeval establishing of a woman's identity. Ladies, you have been created in the image of God. You have been created in the image of God. What a high identity. You are here as an image bearer of God. And so you are of infinite worth and value as an image bearer of God. In Genesis 1, we, we learn the identity of, of a woman. And then, in Genesis 2.18... We have the primeval establishing of a woman's role. So in accordance with her identity and in accordance with how God has created woman, she has a role to fulfill. She has a, maybe some less offensive words for today, an assignment from God. An assignment from God or, or a high calling from God. A way to function in relation to her own husband. And in Genesis 2.18, this is why when God makes the first wife and walks her down the aisle and presents her to her husband, Adam, he declares her role in chapter 2, verse 18. We know her identity who she is, but what is she here for? What is she here to do? And God does speak to that. And he says that I've made her for this man to be his wife, to be a helper that is fit for him. Okay, the other puzzle piece to complete this, a helper that is suitable, which is a very high calling from God. So what that actually looks like, a helper suitable, is the subject of today's sermon. Biblical femininity, biblical womanhood. Uh, One more thing before I pray. In light of the controversial nature of this topic, I would like to make three brief and hopefully helpful statements. And then we'll move into the the real meat of of this sermon. So three, three statements. Number one, this sermon is not only for women who are married. So as you hear what the topic is, Uh, many will be inclined to say, well, I'm not a wife, so this doesn't apply to me. So men may want to check out at this point, and single women might want to check out at this point and think that the, the scope of the application of a message like this is going to be limited. But the truth is, this message is for all of us, but it is for all daughters of Eve. If you are a lady here today, you are a daughter of Eve. So understanding Eve's identity 
Her name means mother of all living. Understanding her identity and understanding the role and assignment and calling that God gave her is crucial for all women. Obviously, this applies to women who are wives today. And I think that the practicality of this teaching will be perhaps fullest and most immediately applicable for you. But to those women who are not married, young and old, and maybe married before, not married before, desiring marriage and and not desiring marriage, understand this, that the reason, we talk about men and women, the reason that God calls man to be head is because God has designed man to be head. It is built into his masculinity. It is built into his manhood. Conversely, the the reason God calls a woman to be a helper is because she has been designed by God to help. It is built into a woman. It is built into her femininity. It is built into her womanhood. Now, for the vast majority of women here today, your design will find fulfillment in marriage. Even some of you young single gals who think that that's never going to happen. Just statistically speaking, the vast majority are going to find the fulfilling of your design is going to end in marriage. But, regardless of God's providence, for women who are here today, regardless of God's providence, in other words, husband or no husband, God will be glorified through your life as it is consistent with the way He has designed you. And so this is very important for you as well. Number two, this sermon should not be rashly applied to someone else. This is our tendency, all of us, any sermon, right? The last person, when we get to the part of the sermon application, the last person we think of applying it to is ourselves. I'm not asking you husbands to learn how to be good wives today. But it is our tendency when we hear sermons, it is our tendency when we hear messages to to rush into uh, applying a sermon to others, but not ourselves. So specifically the way that could go today, and I probably should have said something about this last week too when when we talked about the men. Um, But the way this could go today is is men could hear this message, especially those who are married men, and they could hear this message about about wives, and they could could load this message onto the end of their elbows, right? And and jab their wives with this message. Did you hear that? That was a good point, wasn't it, the pastor made? Then some lively discussion on the way home from church today. We would not recommend that. Do not rush to apply this message to someone else. Please remember this. We are, and this goes for every sermon, we are responsible for ourselves. We are not responsible for the actions of other people in regards to reacting to this sermon. So you're going to think, I understand, you're going to think about how this message applies to to people you love and people you care about. And there there are things you're going to want to share and you're going to want to pass along. My caution would be, do not rush 
to apply this message to someone else. Okay, first, apply the message to ourselves. So the message today is, think of it this way, it is speaking it is speaking to wives, not to husbands about their wives. Two very different ways to, to hear the message. And we think that when we react like that, that, you know, we hear this, we think about who's maybe failing or who's not measuring up the way we think, and then we're eager to go and tell them about it. We think that that's coming from this zeal that we have for God's word. And that's probably not where it's coming from. It's probably coming from personal offense. Not a good starting point. And number three, the content of this sermon is not oppressive for women. It is liberating. I was hoping to get a shout out from a wife there. Oh, well. All right, we're going uphill. The content of this sermon is not. Please hear this, because this is there will be knee-jerk reactions to this. I mean, some of you almost got up during Curtis's prayer. Right? You're like, oh, brother, he did not just say the S word, submission, in his sermon, in his, in his prayer before the sermon. I know where this is going. I've heard it before. This is oppressive teaching. This is going to buck against human equality. And generally, people today, when we do talk about gender distinction, when we do talk about differences between manhood and womanhood, especially when we talk about femininity versus feminism, people will react to that sort of teaching and and say that it sounds at best antiquated, and, and at worst, it's totally oppressive teaching that undermines the equality of men and women. So I want to say at the very beginning that that's actually not true. It's actually not true. We do not serve an oppressive God. We serve a God who loves His children. We serve a God who loves people. And when God says that this is how you should live your lives, it is good to listen to how the one who created you says you should live your lives. And the reason being, like we tell our children, do this, then it may go well for you. So it is not oppressive teaching. If it's from God's Word, it is going to be liberating teaching. So real freedom, this is an understanding I think that's helpful for us. Real freedom is not doing whatever you want to do. That's kind of what we think of, I think, when we think of freedom. Oh, freedom. I'm free. It means I get to do whatever I want to do. That's why the 18-year-old that moves out of his parents' house says, I am free. Typically, he means free to sin. I'm free to do whatever I want to do, no constraints. And, And that is not freedom. And that's not good. It's not even enjoyable. Real freedom is loving to do what God wants you to do. This is freedom. Righteousness is is freedom. Sin is not freedom. Romans 6.22 But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So true for all of us, we will either be free from God or we will be freed unto God. And you want to be freed unto God. 
You don't want to be freed from God. I'm apart from God. I'm distinct from God. I'm not under God. I'm not following God. I'm not with God. I'm autonomous from God. I'm independent from God. You don't want to seek that kind of freedom. You want to be freed from sin and from doing what you want to do that is harmful and hurtful to yourself and to others. And you want to want to do and love to do the things that God has called you to do and designed you to do. And when you're in that place, then you're really experiencing freedom. So when the Bible talks about freedom, it doesn't mean that you are free from all constraints. In fact, that is an illusion. That's a type of freedom that we never actually have. You are always enslaved, every one of us. Make no mistake. We are always enslaved to what we want to do. No one ever does what they don't want to do. We always do what we want to do. Even when we say we're doing what we don't want to do, the reality is when we evaluate our motives, we want to do it. There's some benefit. There's some payoff. So we will either be enslaved by sin or righteousness. Sin leads to misery and death. Righteousness leads to joy and life. Wayne Grudem said the greatest freedom... He says it much better than I do. The greatest freedom is found in being so changed by God's spirit that you can do what you love and know that it conforms to the design of God and leads to life and glory. That is freedom. So freedom as this wonderful, enjoyable, satisfying, content place to be. I mean, we all want those adjectives. Freedom happens for us as human beings. Freedom happens and freedom is experienced when your desire and God's design align. And some of you have experienced that. You could give testimony and say that is true. When what you want to do is not work against God, but is to work with God. What you want to do is according to how He has designed you. And so, in a message like this, this is not oppressive. This is liberating. There may be some things that are hard to swallow. There may be some things that are difficult to accept. There may be some struggle to apply. But when the Spirit of God changes us in such a way that we get to a place where we want... To obey God. We desire to obey God. There is nothing sweeter. Well, let's pray and we'll get started. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for your calling on all of us to glorify you, to enjoy you forever. I pray that as we are in that pursuit, that this teaching would be helpful to all of us. We pray this in the great name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, we looked at masculinity last week. The man was designed by God. We read this in Genesis 2.15. Man was designed by God to work this garden and keep this garden. 
to cultivate this garden, to, to provide in this garden, to protect this garden. Then he, he was given this woman who scripture will later call a garden, this garden within the garden. And he is to cultivate and to love and to protect and to provide. And this is what man is called to do. And four words might come to mind when we look at biblical masculinity, the totality of the teaching in scripture of what it means to be a man. Four words can definitely come to mind. Authority, sacrifice, responsibility, initiative. This isn't all masculinity is, but it's certainly at the heart of masculinity. Authority, sacrifice, responsibility, and initiative. Now today, though, we want to look at what God says about biblical femininity. And later in that same chapter, chapter 2, God creates Eve. He creates this woman from the man and for the man and brings her to the man. And she was designed by God and put in the garden to be a Genesis 2.18, a helper fit, which is what we're trying to understand today. Four words at least come to mind when we think of the heart of biblical femininity. And we'll look at each of these in 1 Peter chapter 3. Four words, though, at the heart of biblical femininity. Submission. A tough word for many of us. It gets tougher. Obedience. Submission. Obedience. Gratitude or respect. And responsiveness. And we could lay these words over one another and we'll do that a bit and see how they relate to one another. If masculinity is authority and sacrifice and responsibility and initiative and biblical womanhood is submission and obedience and gratitude and responsiveness. Before we go to 1 Peter chapter 3 now and look at the practical application, one very important point. Or I think it's very important. One very important point before we get on to more practical application, it's this. These qualities, these qualities in men and women are not to be expressed in every direction. Now explain what I mean by that. These qualities that, that I just listed off. These qualities of in men and women are not to be expressed in every single direction. In other words, a man is not supposed to have authority everywhere. In some directions and in some relationships, a man is to have authority. In other relationships, a man is to be submissive. Likewise... A woman is not to be submissive in every direction. There are some situations and there are some relationships in which she is going to be an authority. And so, these qualities in men and women are not to be expressed in every single direction. That will not go well. So we need to understand what direction, before we even talk about what this really is, in, in what direction is this submission and obedience and gratitude and responsiveness 
Otherwise, if there's no limit on the direction to which a man is expressing his masculinity and a woman is expressing her femininity, for one, with guys, you're going to have guys, and we do often, who are just walking around making decrees everywhere. Right? Just every, well, I'm a man, and so I'm in charge. I speak, and people listen. I give commands. I issue edicts. And people follow them. I am sovereign and I make decree. And you, you'll see this, right? You'll see this sometimes in men that have this attitude where they are in authority everywhere they go because it's something that has to do with their masculinity. And as well, though, if, if we have women who are expressing femininity in every direction, then you end up with women who can't discharge the responsibilities that God has given them. Because they're just fearful and they're just flinching and they're just sort of hiding and they're just always quiet and they're not doing the things that maybe God has called them to do because they think that God has called them to this submission, obedience, gratitude, responsiveness. And it applies in every direction. But actually what we see here is that specifically in talking about a woman that it is lawful. It is lawful for a woman to wield authority and to teach here. And then it is unlawful for her to wield authority and to teach over here. It's understanding where it's appropriate and where it is not appropriate. For example, older women in Titus chapter 2 are instructed to teach younger women. That is a posture of authority to teach younger women. In fact, in churches that apply this idea of biblical femininity in every direction, you sometimes end up with churches where, you know, the the ladies in the church are just sort of seen and not heard. And a lot of time who suffers are the younger women in the church because older women in the church are not assuming a, a, a posture in those young ladies' lives and drawing alongside them and teaching them and training them and encouraging them to do what? To love their children and their husbands. And we, we, need, we need that. Oftentimes that's why I believe in churches that some of the biggest ministries are women's ministries. And sometimes the, you have these formal programs and ministries that go on like six retreats a year and there's training days and there's Bible studies. They just want to get out and get with these other gals. And one of the reasons that it's happening is because just organically in the church, older women are not training younger women and husbands aren't being good teachers at home. And so the church tries to figure out, well, what are we going to do with all these poor women who have lousy husbands and no older women who are pouring into them? Let's start a program. But it may not actually get to the root of the problem. So actually, older women, okay, there is a place where you wield authority. There is a place where you teach, and it's very appropriate. In fact, Paul instructs you to do this, and it is in regards to younger women. As well, mothers are also to give instructions to strong-willed three-year-old little boys. (laughs) I know this, and I have seen this. My wife is an authority in our home. What does Ephesians 6 teach? It's not just talking to little girls. 
Little, little girls obey your mother and father. It's children, little boys, little girls. Well, but he's a little man. Is she to express femininity, submission, obedience, gratitude, responsiveness toward this three-year-old little boy? If she does, Proverbs talks about that, he will be a disaster. He will grow up and be a total nightmare. If she's, well, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to step on his toes. No, step on his toes. So he, so he can't get away, right? <laughs> and instruct him. And be stern at times. And get in that little boy's face. And later when he's a grown man, Proverbs 6.20, he's going to be called to remember the law of his mother. Even when he's a grown man, there's respect for mom. And he recalls and remembers the law of mom. The instruction. So you see, a, a, a woman is to wield authority and she is to teach. She is to teach her children in her home. So what happens in a home, we, you know this, we have four, four little boys. And so we, we see this even in little boys, you know, wanting to express their masculinity, authority, right, responsibility, wanting to express that to mom. And mom... Expressing back authority and responsibility. And little boys needing to learn that you will see your mom's femininity. But you do not experience your mom's femininity. Does that make sense? It is not going to come toward you. Now, they'll see that in a, in, a good, in a good and healthy home, in a good marriage. They'll see that between mom and dad. And they will see other qualities from mom that, 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 that are born out of this. They will see a mom who is, who is a, a gentle and a, and a quiet spirit and who is concerned with a, internal adorning. And, and, and they will see her be subject to her husband. You know, they'll see these kinds of things. But that femininity will not be expressed toward rebellious little boys. Authority will be expressed towards little boys. So the right direction is that women are to be subject when you look at the text. Ephesians 5, Titus 2, 1 Peter 3, they all have this very important word. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. This is where submission gets wildly misunderstood and gets a bad rap. Because the Bible does not teach that men generally run the lives of women. That is not biblical. That is not biblical submission. The Bible does not advocate the universal, indiscriminate submission of women to men. We reject that because it is not biblical. So we don't have a, uh, an environment here at Veritas, right? You may have thought when you heard the prayer and you hear words like submission and obedience that what this is, is, is all the men just sort of walk around here when they need something, they just find a wife. Doesn't need to be theirs, you know, just, uh, well, you're a woman and I need some coffee. Make it happen. That is not how we operate here. Some of you guys would like that, but that is not how we operate around here. 
You do not get to do that. In fact, if you do that, and she's not your wife, she's supposed to say no. She's supposed to look at you and say, no, thank you. I will not. And when she does that, she is not being unsubmissive. She's actually being submissive to her own husband, who said, you don't take orders from other men in the church. It's actually God's protection of her. So what happens in the church or in the world or in the culture when other men try to impose themselves on her and try to rule her and try to push her and try to lead her and they're not her husband? Well, who should be knocking at that man's door? Her own husband or her father or her brother or maybe other men in the church and saying, you have no authority over this woman because she is not your own wife. Practical application now. First Peter chapter 3. I, I think this is fun. I hope you think this is fun. First Peter chapter 3 and helpful. Verses 1 through 6. Likewise, wives, be subject to your, there's the word, own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. I'll read five and six, but this is, this is very interesting. Men are never called in the Bible to adorn themselves. Women are called to adorn themselves. We do not adorn men. We do not draw attention to men in this way. We adorn women. And women, you should adorn yourselves. And you do that physically. Many of you do that. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it should not take priority of internal adornment. And that's what Peter is getting at. Verse 5 and 6. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. In other words, this is how they made themselves beautiful. This, these are the necklaces that, that they put on. By submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So what does this actually look like in women? Submission, obedience, gratitude, responsiveness. Let's first tackle submission. Submission is lovely. It is not ugly. This is supposed to be a beautiful thing. Do you hear Peter talking that way? This is adornment. Ladies, you have you have jewelry that you that you love and when you when you put it on, it, it for whatever reasons, it feels very special to you. And you are adorning yourself and it is something beautiful that you wear. Well, the Bible talks about submission this way. It is lovely. It is not ugly. A wife's submission to her imperfect husband is overflow from her faith and trust in God. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. A wife does not submit to her husband because he deserves to be submitted to. A wife does not submit to her husband because he's wonderful and, and never makes mistakes and it's safe to submit to him. It is an overflow of what is really beautiful 
her faith and trust in God. I love God so much. I trust God so much. I can submit to this imperfect man. And that is glorious. That is lovely. That is how the women of old made themselves lovely, Peter tells us. Peter calls it adornment. And it is the kind of adornment that a wife should primarily pursue. So, for example, here in Peter's case, it is the wife of a disobedient husband. Many of you wives who are here today, you have husbands who are, who are they wouldn't be characterized like this. They're not disobedient husbands. Generally speaking, they're obedient husbands. This is talking to, to wives who, who, who it may not come as, as easy for, not that it ever comes easy, but will be more difficult because they have husbands who are disobedient husbands. And therefore, it looks like she may be tempted to compete outwardly with other women, which is why he says you don't need to, to do that. Okay, she has this disobedient husband, and so she wants to hold on to the... And you see this in culture, right? She wants to hold on to this husband, and so the way that she sort of competes with others who might hold his interest is to uh, adorn herself maybe outwardly. And so Peter says, sends them in a totally different route, and, and Peter calls them to focus on adornment within, which will manifest itself physically to a husband. In other words, a, a husband knows that there, there is nothing more beautiful and glorious and attractive than a wife who from a gentle and quiet spirit respects him and submits to him because he knows that he's not worthy of that. And so he knows that it is her faith and trust in the Lord which is infinitely attractive. He knows that it is born out of that, that it is flowing out of that. And so Peter's encouragement to these wives with disobedient husbands is for that to be the focus. Because there are ways that a 50-year-old wife cannot compete with 22-year-old women. We see this in our culture where she tries to compete outwardly. And it's a silly game. She cannot compete outwardly, but there are ways that 22-year-old women cannot compete with a 50-year-old wife who has grown in grace. No comparison. None. Who's more beautiful? Who's more attractive? Who's more lovely? Hands down. Absolutely no competition. So Peter says, focus, focus here. Because there's nothing superficial about this kind of adornment. This is deep, deep adornment. And he uses Sarah as an example from the Old Testament. So we understand then, in understanding submission, that submission is adornment. I've heard that, and I see it pulled from this text, and I think it's very helpful. Gals, when you think of submission, think of adornment, like a necklace that you put on, a beautiful necklace. It is adornment. Two, making three points here about submission. Submission is a disposition. 
It's a disposition toward your husband. And consequently, it is a certain demeanor toward your husband. When we think of submission, we think that it's like a series of giving in to stupid decisions. That's how submission gets characterized. So this is what submission is between a wife and a husband. He's a bonehead. And he's going to do dumb things and go in directions that she does not want him to go, but she's going to be submissive. And she's going to give in to whatever situation might arise. That is not submission. And that's not beautiful. Submission is a disposition. It's, it's a de- demeanor. Now, now, those things will flow out of that, and those occasions will happen where practically a wife submits to her husband. We're going to get to that with, with obedience. But it's coming from a disposition of a wife where she is, is, is nurturing and receiving and affirming strength and leadership in, in her husband. And number three, submission is rooted in faith, not fear. This is what he says at the end here, right? You are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So a woman who cowers at her husband. That is not lovely. And his behavior that has prompted that is despicable. That is not submission. A woman who submits to her husband because she's fearful of his, uh, of his reaction or fearful of what he's going to do or fearful of what he is going to withhold, that is not what Scripture is talking about when it talks about submission. It is rooted in faith, not fear. When submission is rooted in fear, it is ugly. It is oppressive. That is not submission. Submission is not the wife is a doormat. Submission is, here's this wife who is lovely, the most lovely creature on the planet to this husband. And she is nourished and she is cherished and led and known and provided for and protected by this man. And she, trusting God first and foremost, trusts him and loves him and follows him. And when that happens, and when a man and a woman as a husband and wife complement one another in that way, according to their identity, according to their design, and function according to the assignment that God has given them. There is nothing more beautiful. This is the unique way that God displays His glory in the relationship between a man and a woman. And this is how it happens. So Peter offers an example here which moves us on to obedience because he he uses Sarah. And he says that Sarah is an example of this Beautiful adornment because she obeyed her husband. In fact, she had a very catchy nickname for him, if you see it there. She calls him Lord. But this external, again though, if we understand submission, this external obedience is, is, is coming from an internal adornment. Right? So we start with submission and that disposition and now Flowing from that is obedience. Now, we cannot get around this. Right? We would like to. This would save, you know, this would keep the people from gathering now outside in a mob. But we cannot, we can't go around this. Wives are called to obey their husbands. 
This is a reality. This is a working out of a submissive disposition of a wife toward her husband's. It's interesting because this used to be a part of marriage vows. I've done quite a few weddings. And it's interesting to see how little, when a wife is saying her vows to her husband, how little this phrase comes up, I promise to obey you. Once or twice, I think, in all the marriages that that I have done. Usually couples want to talk about this mutual submission. That is not what the Bible speaks about. But we, we resist this. We resist this. But we cannot get around it. In fact, it's what was beautiful about Sarah. She obeyed her husband. Now that said, remember, no human authority is absolute. Only God's authority is absolute. So whatever authority any of us are under, including the authority of a wife under her husband, whether it's the president, whether it's a pastor, whether it's a parent, whether it's a husband, we obey God. And anyone else we obey, we obey because in obeying them, we are obeying God. So it all comes under all horizontal obedience, including the obedience of a wife to her husband, is because we're vertically obedient. So we only submit to those authorities which God says are an authority. Pastors an authority. You have civil authorities. Parents are an authority. A husband is an authority. But they get their authority from God. Genuine authority. But it's not absolute authority. So... Wives, obey God and disobey your husbands if obeying your husbands means disobeying God. A husband wants his wife to deny Christ. I cannot do that. I will not submit to your authority. A husband wants his wife to be unfaithful with him. I cannot do this. I cannot submit to your authority. Why? Because the, the, the first authority is God. Amen. And the only authority that you have, husband, over me is because God has given you that authority and you're to use that authority for my good. And if your authority is telling me to sin and to disobey God, then I fall back here under God's authority, which is going to lead me to disobey you in this case. So this is what we mean when we speak of of obedience. This obedience reinforces the submissive disposition. It reinforces, it does not contradict the internal adornment. So if a wife, if her husband is leading her to sin, she should go to her pastor. If her husband is abusing her, she should go to the police. These things are not acceptable. And they are abuse of authority. And she is under first the authority of God. Before she ever belonged to this guy, she belonged to this God. Submission, obedience, gratitude. Or respect. And I mean gratitude as a a meaningful expression 
of respect. And perhaps the expression of respect that is best received by men. Insight for those wives that may not have that already. Respect received, felt, most poignantly through gratitude. So femininity of a wife toward her husband will include gratitude. Remember, husbands learn to be husbands from Jesus and wives learn to be wives from the church. That's that Ephesians 5. Husbands, wives, marriage. It's like the marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. So husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church. Okay, wives, respect your husbands. Okay? Submit to your husbands. And where do you look? The church. As an example. Okay? What does the church primarily express toward Christ? Gratitude. This is what we... You understand, this is why we gather every Sunday. This is a service of gratitude. Every Sunday when we come together, the service is put together in such a way that we acknowledge our sinfulness before a God who has saved us and we are eternally grateful and we are thankful. And so we are remembering how good our God is and we're remembering how great our God is and we are in song and in prayer and in listening to Him. We are expressing our gratitude to God every single Sunday. So, Those of you wives who have husbands who work and and provide and protect and lead, you should express your gratitude. It is an overflow of your femininity toward your husband. You should express your gratitude. Now, wives, I would not recommend that you do this, that you say this on the the car ride home today. I weekend... My wife and I have had conversations like this in the past, and, and, and so we would like to save some of you. Don't, wives, don't ask this on the way home in the car today. Don't, don't look at your husband and say, do you think I'm ungrateful? <laughs> do not ask that. Do, do not say, do you think that I am thankful enough? Listen, those are foolish questions. Very foolish questions. There are a couple options about how that, of how that can go. Maybe three, but three rarely happens. One and two. One is he's going to be tempted big time to lie. You will make a liar of him right there and then. It's the, does this dress make me look fat question, right? <laughs> Am I, do you, do you think, do you, am I that, am I ungrateful? Now, if he, maybe he doesn't think that you are. If he does think that you could be a little more grateful. If if he would like a a little more gratitude, if he knows that that would be helpful, that would build his confidence and and he would love you all the more. If he, if he knows that he's going to be tempted in that moment to lie to you. He's going to be tempted to say, oh, honey, you are perfect. You couldn't be more grateful if you tried. And the reason that he will do that is because he wants to avoid a fight. He wants to avoid conflict. And so he will be tempted. It's not right for him to lie, but he he will be tempted to lie. Or he will, if he believes that she could be more grateful, almost worse, he'll tell the truth. (laughs) 
And then the response is, I'm ungrateful? Are you serious? I just spent 86 hours with five children clawing at me, cleaning laundry, cleaning the house, cooking food. I don't remember any thank yous this week. You know, heads start moving in weird directions because gals have these extra bones in their neck. One time 10 years ago, I got the finger wag from my wife. Wow. That was intimidating. It was like a sight on a gun just right there in my face. <laughs> that is a slow pitch softball to your wife. Don't, don't, don't do that. She will swing. And she will hit that baby out of the park. No problem. And you will find yourself in submission and obedience. <laughs> My goodness. So this is what, when, when we hear this, this is how this works out. We all need to be more thankful. That's how we, we apply this. Don't, don't ask. That's not going to go well. It's not helpful. We're gonna, they're foolish questions that are, are going to tempt people. And it's, again, it, it's, it's looking for a way out of maybe doing something more. I want my husband to say yes so that, no, just, just hear this. We all need to be more thankful. So, wives, I can answer for your husbands. You need to be more grateful. And the reason is because there's just no lid on your gratitude. You can be more and more grateful. And the more and more grateful you are, the more beautiful not only will you become to Him, but the more glorifying you will be to God. As rooted in your faith and trust in God, you can perpetually and consistently acknowledge, even in this fallen man, the good in Him because of Christ. That's beautiful. It's beautiful, and, and it can be done. You have to ask yourself the question, wives, do you want to be beautiful to your husband? Do you want to be beautiful to your husband? Now, I understand, sure, you, you can go and you, you can put that, that dress on that is just beautiful, right? And he, he sees that and he's just reminded of his, his passion for you, his love for you, his affection for you. you. You can do that. But listen, this is a whole other level when we're talking of this internal adornment. This internal adornment. That is beauty far beyond anything outward. Now as well. As well. What about wives who don't have. Uh, we'll just call them good husbands. Uh, what, what about the wives who have the husband that. He's not working as hard as he should. He, he, he's, he's, he's not protecting. Maybe he's, he's not providing as well as he should. Well here's what's really interesting. That's actually the context of First Peter chapter 3. That's actually the context. This is a wife who has a husband who is not doing well. And so, as well, wives who have disobedient husbands should work to, one, cultivate gratitude, and then, two, express that gratitude. So, so there's genuine. It might need to be cultivated. But it needs to be cultivated, and then it needs to be expressed. So this is, this is heard often in a, a marriage counseling room. I refuse to respect him until he is respectable. You want to be respected? Then be respectable. 
do these things in this way, get better at it, succeed, don't fail, whatever it is, love me the way that I want to be loved, do things the way I want you to do them, some reasonable, some unreasonable, but when he's respectable, that is when I will be respectful. So, so this wouldn't apply them to a wife who's in that frame of mind. There would be something that would be added, a condition that has to be inserted into Scripture where it says, respect him, be subject to him, if, and there's no if, there is no if in the Bible's teaching of this femininity expressed from a wife toward her husband. So she as well is to respect him and to express gratitude. And women will say, I cannot do this. It is difficult. I cannot do this. I've heard gals say, I I feel like it would be lying. I would feel like a hypocrite. It would be disingenuous. I mean, sometimes it's a matter of personal integrity to me. I, I just, I cannot do that. But listen, even if he's not the most respectable husband, he should be respected by his wife. We cannot get around this, ladies. Even if he is not the most respectable husband, he should be respected by his wife. Let me give you two reasons that I think are enough. He should be respected because if you do that, number one, you're obeying God. That's, that's enough. He should be respected. Gratitude should be expressed to him because when you do that, you are obeying God. And number two, gals, I know we think practically, so maybe this will be helpful. Number two, a wife... Rendering respect to an unrespectable husband is God's means of making him respectable. That's what he says in 1 Peter 3, verse 1 and 2. He's saying, okay, wives, I've got some wives here. You've got disobedient husbands. Okay, let's focus on this outward adornment and respect your husband so that when they see your respectful and pure conduct, they may be one without a word. So let me say that again. Respect even husbands who aren't all that respectable because number one, God calls you to. And number two, a wife rendering respect to an unrespectable husband is God's means of making him respectable. Respect breeds respect. You'll actually convince him he is respectable. (laughs) He'll believe you. And he'll change. This is how this works. Now, if she thinks so, or if a wife thinks that I will withhold this, and, and this is how I will motivate him, and this is how I will change him, that is not biblical thinking. And it's not the way God has made things. And it's not the way God has designed things. Therefore, it will not work. A couple more points about this. I know this is difficult. When a wife does not respect her husband, it is most likely a vertical issue and not a horizontal issue. 
This is true from Scripture, and this is true from my experience as a, a, my limited experience as a pastor and counselor. If a wife is really struggling to respect her husband, it's usually, 90% of the time, it's a vertical problem, not a horizontal problem. It's a problem, it's a deficiency in her relationship with God that's keeping her from respecting this imperfect man. It's actually not primarily an issue between her and him. So here are some things that I say, and then just a couple helpful words about each of them. He doesn't deserve it. I can't respect him. I cannot do this. I cannot express gratitude because he does not deserve it. So let me start by saying that is a true statement. Well, I'm not going to argue with that. In fact, even the most respectable husband in here does not deserve it. You're right. Absolutely, he does not deserve it. And a wife does not deserve being loved when she's unlovely. Both true. But God calls him to love his wife always. This knife cuts both ways, doesn't it? This will not come naturally. But he is called to love his wife even when she is not lovely. In the same way that she is called to respect her husband even when he is not respectable. Shall he refuse? Shall a husband refuse to love his wife when she's not lovely? When a wife is, 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 is not expressing these qualities... In her life, in other words, she is unsubmissive when, when she's not gentle, uh, when she's loud, when she's not being submissive to her husband. One author says that for a wife, that's like taking ugly pills. You're not you're not helping yourself with your husband. You're, it's like taking ugly pills. When you're unsubmissive and you're and you're and you're not gentle and you're and you're loud and you're not you're you're not paying any attention to the way God has designed you and how this is supposed to work, it's like taking ugly pills. But isn't that when that happens, and it does, when that happens, wives, isn't that when you desire to be, and isn't that when you need to be loved the most? It, is a husband permitted? When his wife is not lovely to say, well, no love today, no affection today, no provision today, no protection today. Get things squared away, get this worked out, start respecting me, and then, and then I'll love you. And this is not the call that God has on our lives. Remember the golden rule in Matthew 7? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Wives, do you want your husbands to love you even when you're not lovely? I know you do. When you're not lovely, I mean, you're crushed and you don't, you don't want to be there. And you want out of that. And it's kindness and love, isn't it, that leads you out and leads you to repentance like the kindness of our great and glorious God. This is how you want it to be done unto you. And so do this unto others. I know he doesn't deserve it. I know true but respect him express gratitude nevertheless something else that will be said there is nothing to respect in this man really we nothing you might have to stop start small but nothing that's usually an overstatement i would respect him so this is the way out 
Okay, I get it. Okay, he doesn't deserve it, so I still got to do it. Well, there's nothing respectable about this man. I am, and this is how it goes, I am ready to respect, right, right? I'm ready to respect him. I'm so willing to respect him, right? If he was just respectable, even in the smallest way, you know, they look over. Just a little bit. That's all I need, and I would be the most respectful wife alive. But there is nothing in this man that is respectful, and so I'm not going to lie, and I'm not going to make stuff up. Not going to be a, a hypocrite. So that, then, this is not disingenuous. You will need to, as I said earlier, cultivate gratitude. You'll need to cultivate gratitude. It may be that a wife who thinks that there is nothing respectable in her husband is spoiled. And this is, is not counting her blessings and remembering her blessings and remembering the good and remembering God's grace, maybe even through this messed up husband. And so it might need to be cultivated. So wives, my practical encouragement would be think of if that's the place where there's nothing to respect, think, labor to think of something you're grateful for and be grateful for it to God and to him. Everything you can in in good conscience, respect him for, respect him for. And express that gratitude. It may have to start really small. I'm so thankful you eat your food with a fork. I mean, if you've got to start small and just start with little expressions of gratitude because there's nothing else, you know, maybe next week he's using a knife. Who knows? This could get better and better. But you need to want to, you, you need to want to, you want to get to a place where you want to express this gratitude. And then the third thing that's often heard is this. And I think we've already, we've already handled this. But if I respect him when he's not respectable, he'll become more unrespectable. I, I think that's really a temptation that I see. But I cannot do that. If I do that, I'm going to become a doormat. This is not going to go well. If I, if I show gratitude to this husband who is often not respectable, then all that's going to do is give him a license to be more sinful and he's going to become less respectable. And all we can say about that is this. That is not biblical thinking. It may seem logical to you, and it may make sense in your mind, but we're not called to think with with logic in our mind and our reason as the primary engine in our thoughts and decisions. We're to apply God's Word. And so that would not be biblical thinking. Again, it is that respecting of even a husband who is unrespectable that is God's means to making him respectable. So... If he's not as respectable as you like, you've got a couple. One option is to tell him. Though we don't recommend that. I mean, there may be things you need to address, but telling him every day that he's just not as respectable as you think he should be is probably not going to be a helper suitable. It's probably not going to be helpful. Or the other option is you can trust God and you can look for ways in a good conscience to respect him. And to express gratitude. And you do this to obey God. But obeying God will go well for you. And this will be how you influence your husband. 
Wives are enormous influencers of their husband. Right? Submission is not, I don't have a voice and I'm quiet and he rules and it's his way or the highway. That is not submission. Wives, you should know that you are the most influential person on the planet with your husbands. But the way that you influence are in these ways. And you influence greatly. Lastly, number four, responsiveness. Men, initiative. Women, responsiveness. One, one author calls this a dance between a husband and a wife. And the more I thought about it, I thought this was a very helpful analogy. The relationship between a husband and a wife is like a dance where he initiates and she responds. The man has been called to initiate and the wife has been called to respond. The way this author puts it, he bows and she curtsies. This traditional gesture of greeting when they come together for this dance, he bows and she curtsies. And this is how complementarian relationship between a husband and wife is the work where the man initiates and the wife responds. And so a husband and wife are moving toward, this is the image, a husband and a wife are moving toward one another and moving forward toward God together. And the husband is taking the initiative and the wife is responding to that initiative. It's not up for grabs. It's not sometimes over here and sometimes over there. No, the responsibility is given so that it's clear so that we can move on to other and better things and not wrestle over this that he should initiate and she should respond. They come together and he initiates, he bows, and she responds, she curtsies. This is a complementary relationship. And the way this works is when there are problems in marriage, typically it is because this is not going well. When there are problems in a marriage, it is because he is not bowing and she is not giving a curtsy. He is being effeminate. He's being submissive. He's abdicating his responsibility. And she is being masculinist in her behavior toward him. And she is taking authority and she is usurping his authority. And both of them are very frustrated with one another. Frustration in a marriage is the biggest indicator that if you're frustrated in your marriage, it's the biggest indicator that you are not obeying God in your marriage. There will be other problems, but frustration is usually an indicator when I feel that, that I am not obeying God and fulfilling my responsibility in the marriage. And so tragically what happens, and I'm sure you've seen this, maybe you've experienced this, if a wife stops responding, he stops initiating. Worst case scenario, he starts initiating other places where he's responded to. I'm going to bow here and look like an idiot and look like a fool. Eventually, no excuse. Eventually, he starts bowing somewhere else. And he starts looking for a response somewhere else. Wives, be responsive to your husbands. Some of what has happened is early on in a marriage that timing was wrong or his tactics were wrong or his facial expression was wrong or his verbiage was wrong and he was rejected or at least not responded to. And so often or eventually this man gives up. So we need to remember that we're all sinners and we're all struggling through this and we need to be gracious to one another. We need to extend grace to one another. 
Learn for a wife. Learn your husband's language, the way he communicates to you. Learn to receive his initiative. Sometimes wives think that they want their husbands to initiate with them in the way that they would want him to initiate. And then they find that when he starts doing that, they don't like that at all. Because it feels like he's just doing what they told him to do. And now it doesn't feel like initiative anymore. So don't do that. Don't push him into... how If he initiates, if it's... If it doesn't make a lot of sense, or it's not what you would prefer, or the timing is bad, or his facial expression is all wrong, or he's not saying things well, listen, if you don't respond well to that, you're training him to not take initiative. You are training him to not take initiative. So wives, it is helpful and it is good. And you should learn to respond to your husbands in such a way that it will not lead to apprehension on his part. Again, we remember the relationship between Christ and the church where he initiates and we respond. We love because he first loved us. The challenge, men, is to bow. Bow. Husbands, take initiative. In many ways. Take initiative with your wives. Take initiative physically. Take initiative sexually. Take initiative with plans for your family. Take initiatives in prayer. Take initiatives in applying God's word. Take initiative. And, and when the husband takes initiative, wives, curtsy. In conclusion, the challenge is simply put, men, we must obey God. Husbands, we must obey God. And this is not conditioned on whether or not our wives obey God. Wives, obey God. And this is not conditioned on whether or not your husbands obey God, whether or not he's cooperating in the process. You are called to obey God. Wives, evaluate your marriages. Are you submissive? Are you obedient? Is there gratitude? Is there responsiveness? Let's pray. Our great and glorious Father in heaven, we thank you for making us the way that you've made us. We thank you for involving us in the display of your beauty and your glory, God. God, it is a good thing to know that out of all of the the, the great and beautiful things that we see in this world that are a display of how great and and awesome and amazing you are that you also have seen fit to display that greatness through the relationship between a husband and a wife so we pray that you would help us to do well incline our husbands to their wives and incline our wives to their husbands and incline all of us to you father that we would desire to live holy and upright lives humble and contrite before you our holy god that our desire to please you and to honor you would be more important to us than what we get out of our relationships. And in this, God, that we would see that this is for our greatest good, that you are working for the best of your children. And we would remember that this is the way to your greater glory. And hopefully and prayerfully, that is our greatest desire. So in this time now, as we remember your sacrifice, Fill us, God, with gratitude to you. Fill us with responsiveness to you, submission to you, obedience to you, our great God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.